Would you guys thank Andy Cherry for being here with us this weekend? For those of you who, who don't know, Andy was a pastor here for a time. He lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's a worship pastor there now, and he, he gets to come back every now and then when it's really, really cold, and uh, that's why we, we like to bring him in on these weekends. Uh, I had dinner with Andy last night at, 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 our, at our home, and Andy got there about 4.30, and you know we're starting to kind of cook dinner, and he says, is there anything I can do to help? And Amy handed him all the ingredients for curry and said, yes make a curry. And it was delicious. So if you need curry for a modest fee, Andy will come to your house and make you curry. I can offer that uh, for you. Hey, uh, you ever made a snap decision that you regret? You ever like, you know, somebody comes to you with an opportunity or whatever and something, you, you panic or you're stressed or maybe it sounds like a good idea at the time and you say yes, or you say no, or whatever, but then, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and you get to the other side of the thing, you, you look back and you go, man, that was an awful choice. I, I've done that uh, just one time in my life, only once, um, m- far more than that. Uh, at my former church, we were setting up this illustration about what it means to walk with Jesus, and kind of the point of the illustration was, it, it's more about practice than perfection. Uh, you know, it's, it's more about every day getting up and walking with Jesus and learning to trust him and read his word and pray. And over time, all those days and years of practice uh, turn you into a mature Christian. We call those the four D's here, the four D's of discipleship, but it's habits and practices that you employ in your life that help you grow into a fully formed follower of Jesus. You don't just get up and decide one day and then you've got spiritual maturity. So we said, well, how can we illustrate this in a way that will make sense to people? And we had a friend at at my former church um, that played hockey. And when I say played hockey, I mean played in the NHL for 21 seasons and was the captain of the Canadian national team. So he was okay at his job, right? So here's what we thought. Maybe we could get somebody who's never played hockey before, never been on the ice before, and put them in full goaltender gear and send them out on the ice like a cow to slaughter, And then we will have this guy who is notorious for having one of the hardest shots in the NHL, he's retired now, just fire pucks at that guy. And we'll film it. And we'll say, see, you know, going out and just deciding you're going to be a great hockey player one day is not going to make you a great hockey player. So you have to learn and practice and grow over time, and then you become a mature hockey player. Same way with Jesus, walking with Jesus. So that's not the point of the sermon this morning. The point of the sermon is this. The question was, who can we find that's never played hockey before, that's willing to get in full goaltender gear and put their lives in the very hands of somebody else? And I said, I'll do it. (laughs) Oh, no, what did I just say? (laughs) I made a snap decision, and my friend uh, who, uh, if you're a hockey fan, my friend Shane Doan fired pucks at me for about 30 minutes and giggled his little head off because I was terrified the entire time. I look back on that decision and I think, that was a snap decision. I should have thought a little more about that. I should have offered someone else. I should have made Amy do it. Something, something else besides me. 
Uh, ladies, single ladies especially in the room, all the single ladies. Um, <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. <laughs> you ever made a snap decision that when a guy asks you out and you say yes, and then after the fact you're going, oh, no, I shouldn't have said yes. You ever got an email at work that wasn't your favorite email, and you say, I'm going to respond to this right now. Best, you know, and then you sign your name. I love those emails because a lot of times they start with, I hope this email finds you well, you know. <laughs> Our friend Daniel, who we've been studying, is in a similar type of situation today, and, and it's not just, you know, whether or not you might, you know, have a good time out on the ice for a little while looking like a baby deer on roller skates or, you know, a date or an email or whatever, but really his very life is at stake in Daniel chapter 2. And rather than making a snap decision, Daniel responds with such patience and wisdom, and, and because he does that, he saves his own life and the lives of so many of his colleagues. So here's where I'm going this morning in Daniel chapter 2. What I want to give to you is, is a gift, and I don't mean that in like a condescending type of way, but I want to give you a gift of knowing how to access true wisdom when it comes to decisions in your life. And avoiding those snap decisions, you know, like honking at somebody in traffic and then you realize the dude's like 6'6", 250 and used to play for the Bills, you know. Like those snap decisions in your life that you look back and go, man, I wish I would have thought about that a little bit more. I wish I would have been a little more patient. I wish I would have showed a little more prudence and caution. I wish I would have prayed through that a little bit more. Mm, how do you do that? Daniel shows us how in Daniel chapter 2. And you might be surprised as to how he does it. So if you have a Bible, I would love it if you would open it up to Daniel chapter 2. If you remember, uh, the nation of Israel, prior to David becoming king, was kind of a ragtag group of 12 nomadic tribes that were kind of wandering a little bit uh, and had no homeland in, in, in that part of the world. David united those 12 tribes into one singular kingdom. So what was God's family became a kingdom, a nation, and their job was to bless the other nations around them. Unfortunately, 10 tribes in the north were unfaithful to God's covenant and to the promises they had made to God. And so they were, uh, they were kind of sacked and sieged in the 8th century. And then two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah, stayed faithful to God's covenant for a while. But eventually, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, in the very end of the 7th century BC, came in and sacked and besieged Jerusalem and those two tribes as well. And not only did they they kind of demolish the capital and demolish uh, the temple eventually and demolish all that they had set up in terms of architecture and governance, etc. The, the Babylonian Empire also grabbed the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the young people, uh, 13, 14, 15 years old, who were of noble blood, who were smart, competent, skilled. I mean, really, they kind of 
sucked all the young leaders into the Babylonian Empire and relocated them, exiled them out of their country and began to teach them their own literature and language. They were taking the best leaders, the best athletes, the smartest, the best, the brightest, and reorienting them into this new, very pagan, very anti-Yahweh culture. Daniel was one of those young men. He was probably about 13 at the time. I don't want to review uh, Daniel chapter 1, but in Daniel chapter 2, we really have three major movements that we will uh, unpack together this morning. Those three movements are the altercation, the revelation, and the interpretation. So if you're jotting down notes and you want a little bit of an outline, uh, those three headings kind of uh, capture what happens in Daniel chapter 2. There is an altercation between the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and his advisors, and and then... uh, uh, next, there is a revelation of this dream to Daniel, and, and finally, um, go back one slide, go back one slide, sorry. Finally, the interpretation of the dream Daniel shares with Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to start with the altercation. We're going to start with the altercation between Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors. Here's what happens. Uh, in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, now I've got this slide up here for a reason because... If you're a careful reader of the text, you might think, wow, wait a minute. So in chapter 1, it was Nebuchadnezzar's first year. And I also know that Daniel was, was going to be in school learning the literature and language of the Chaldeans for three years. And so if Daniel is supposed to be in school for three years, and this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and they both started together, Nebuchadnezzar uh, as king and Daniel as uh, education in the Chaldean system, how is it that, that, that these things harmonize and line up? So careful readers, and this has happened over time now, and scholars have looked at this and, and say, they've said, you see, the Bible is not historically accurate. Well, what I want to give to you this morning is a harmonization of those texts so that you know as we encounter problems in the text, and we don't get to address all of them, but when we encounter problems in the the text, there are answers to those problems. So stick with me here. Here's how these two things work out. Up here on the screen, uh, I've abbreviated Nebuchadnezzar because if we spelled his whole name, we would need another TV. So I've abbreviated his his name, Neb. That would be a great name. If anybody's name is Neb, God bless you, Neb. And then I've also got Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar has reigned now for three years. But back then, they called the first year of a reign his accession year. And then in his second year, they started counting at one. And then third year, started counting at two. Daniel now has been in school as a lit- learning the literature and language of the Chaldeans for three years. That is why, go back one, or go forward one slide, that we can be in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar because it was his accession year, then his first, then his second, and Daniel's been in school for three years. Everybody with me on that? I just wanted to address that problem in the text. And what happens in the second year is that the king commands the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, of which Daniel is one now, right? He's been in school for three years. So Daniel is one of these guys to be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Now listen to what the king is saying. He's not saying, interpret my dream. What he says is, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. We, we don't really know if he's forgotten the dream 
He says, I know I had a dream. Tell me what it was. We don't know if he's testing them. We can't know for sure. I believe he's testing them. I'll show you why in a minute. But what he's saying to his advisors, to his trusted advisors is, I had a dream last night. Guess what it was? I don't know if any of you have children. I know that some of you obviously do. I have a five-year-old, uh, and, and every now and then she'll give me this one. Hey, Daddy, guess what? I don't know, babe, what? No, Daddy, guess. Like, you give me no clues, no breadcrumbs, no nothing? Like, guess. I don't know, pomegranate. I don't know. Guess. And, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Like, tell me my dream. And like, you know, you had a dream that you went to school and you were naked, you know, and everyone else was wearing clothes. It's like, that's the normal dream that everyone has, right? Like, that's the normal dream. I mean, that, that would have been their best guess. That is not the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And they say to him, look, here's what we want you to do. You tell us what you dreamt, we'll tell you what it means. We'll give you the interpretation. And back then, these guys, the Chaldeans and the sorcerers, the enchanters and the wise men in this Babylonian empire had dream interpretation books. Uh, archaeologists have actually discovered some of them. They're very, very thick. They're very, very robust and thorough. And they required a professional to even navigate these dream interpretation books. So like, look, you tell us a dream, we'll go to our books, we'll tell you what it means. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, uh, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Aye. Does that feel a little aggressive to you? Like what a test this is, right? Guess my dream. Well, what if we can't? I'm going to kill you and burn your house down. Wow. Here's why. Uh, the, the Chaldeans go back to him another time and they say, okay, Maybe you should tell us the dream. <laughs> this is the second time they've asked. Tell us the dream. We'll tell you the interpretation. The king said to them, the, uh, next slide, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time. You're trying to buy time. That's why you keep asking. Because you see that the word from me is firm. And if you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me. Ah, See, now this is why I believe that Nebuchadnezzar is testing them. I, I believe he knows his dream and he's making them guess it because they have lied and spoken corruption to him in the past. They've given him poor counsel. They've manipulated him. They've told him things are going on that aren't going on. They've withheld information from him. And I think he's grown tired of it. So he's like, I had a dream. What was it? Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretations. The Chaldeans answered prophetically, accidentally, but prophetically, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. This is the altercation. This is what happens at the very beginning of Daniel chapter 2, is that the wise men of the kingdom are summoned, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me my dream and tell me what it means. So subsequently, a man named Arioch is sent out by Nebuchadnezzar because these guys can't tell him the dream. And, Ari and King Nebuchadnezzar tells Arioch, well, then gather up all of their colleagues. We're going to kill them all. One of those colleagues is young Daniel, probably about 17 years old at this time. And what happens is that God reveals to him the dream. This is the revelation. 
what happens is uh, Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He goes to his house and he goes, look, guys, if we can't come up with the dream and the interpretation, the king's going to slice us all up and burn our houses to the ground. Good thing, bad thing. Well, bad. Okay. So he told his companions to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. The dream has now been revealed to Daniel. So Daniel requests an audience before King Nebuchadnezzar. He comes in before King Nebuchadnezzar, and the first thing is he tells him his dream. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, here was your dream. You, dream, you dreamt of a large statue, really big statue, and the head was made of gold, and the arms and the chest were made of silver, and the midsection was made of bronze, and then the legs down here were made of iron, and then the feet were made of a combination of iron and clay. And while that statue stood, you saw a rock carved out of a mountain, not by human hands. And that rock dashed against the feet of the statue. And when the feet of the statue were destroyed, the entire statue became crumbling down. And it became like chaff, and it was blown away by the wind. Could you imagine Nebuchadnezzar's response? It's like, pick my jaw up off the floor, right? Like, that's a weird dream. I had a dream one time that I was at an Aussie. Should, should I tell you this? This has nothing to do with my sermon. I had a dream one time that I was, at a, I was at like an after party for the Academy Awards and I was wearing a tuxedo and I was like hobnobbing with people and I was like, hello, Gwyneth Paltrow, you know? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Santa Claus came through in his sleigh. It was very weird, very weird. So I told you one time, hey, tell me my dream. And you're like, you were at an after party at the Academy Award. You, I would be like, what the? You know, this is a weird dream. Gold, silver, bronze. Like, what is happening here? And Daniel says, hey, now, I want to tell you the interpretation. I want to tell you the interpretation. He said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, you're that head of gold. And that's the most precious metal. That's the top of the statue to which Nebuchadnezzar responds, yes, I am. Thank you very much. And so you're that head of gold, so your empire, Nebuchadnezzar, and history now calls that the Babylonian empire, is that head of gold. But there will arise another kingdom after you that will be lesser than your kingdom. And that kingdom, history tells us, is the Medo-Persian kingdom or empire. Finally, in the fourth century, there will be a third kingdom. This is the legs of bronze down here. Fourth century kingdom that overtook the entire known world at the time. Western civilization people, what kingdom was it? Greece, that's what it was. There you go. You know what? Tell me your name again, brother. Jaden? Yeah, okay, so we've spoken a few times. And last time I asked what that adapter was. Remember I asked what the adapter was on the, the picture of the screen and you said it was a dongle? You remember that? So, so that was not impressive. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that, that was what I would expect from a Tyndale education. You know what I mean? But the fact that you knew that that was the Greek empire, my respect has just gone through the roof now. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tyndale education. You should stand up and do a little, yeah, he gave one of, the, one of these. Um, thank you. It's the Greek Empire. It's Alexander the Great, 332 BC, uh, 332 BC, conquers the entire modern world. That's the legs of bronze. And then there was one more empire that followed Alexander the Great. Do you know what it is? It's the Roman Empire. 
It's the Roman Empire that followed Alexander the Great. And, and, and he says, now look, that thing that God, that you saw that was carved out of a mountain with no human hands was pulled out of that mountain. That's the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, this little bitty thing, is going to hit the feet of the Roman Empire, and they're all going to come crumbling down. In other words, demonstrating that the kingdom of God is more powerful than any kingdom that preceded it. And that, and that rock, uh, Daniel says, grows over time, and it encompasses and fills the whole earth. So what we're seeing here is not just prophecy that's already taken place, because when Daniel speaks this prophecy, he is in the midst of the Babylonian Empire. Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman haven't come yet, so he's prophesying those things. Those things have come to pass. But what has not come to pass is that rock that's been carved out of the uh, mountain in encompassing the whole world. This is a messianic reference, but it's also a kingdom of God reference, is because one day Jesus, the cornerstone, the rock of ages, will come back and every knee will bow and every tongue confess and Daniel will be vindicated in his prophecy. About 90% of it has come true already. We're just waiting for the last 10%. So Nebuchadnezzar responds, wow, that was awesome. Would you like a promotion? (laughs) And Daniel says, sure I would. You know who else would? My buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they all get promoted in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom because they were able to tell him the dream and the interpretation. And Daniel saves his buddies bacon. Cool, right? Love that story. The tempting part as we study the book of Daniel is to read it and think things like, um, so how... How am I like Nebuchadnezzar, and how should I stop being like Nebuchadnezzar? Or we read it and we think, what's Daniel doing, and how can I copy and emulate Daniel? I want to be like Daniel. But remember we established this last week that Daniel is not a book about Daniel. You remember we talked about this? Who is Daniel about? Daniel's a book about God. Daniel's a book about God. So what we have to do is observe Daniel's behavior and allow his behavior to point us toward God's character. It's kind of like you observe the fruits of an apple tree. And the tree can exist without fruits, the tree can exist without shoots, but the tree can't exist without roots. They're invisible, they're under the surface, you can't see them, but the fruit and the shoots of the tree uh, direct us and call attention to the roots. So in the same way, we can observe Daniel's behavior and allow it to point us toward the character and attributes of God. Can you go with me on this journey this morning? Okay, so let's watch Daniel's behavior. Ariok comes to Daniel and he says, hey, buddy, uh, sorry to tell you, but Nebuchadnezzar's killing all of you, so come with me. And then Daniel responded with prudence and discretion to Ariok, the capital of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Prudence and discretion. There was a level of caution, is that word? And discretion. The the New International Version translates it this way. Daniel responded with wisdom and tact. How many of you, remember single ladies, right? When that dude that asked you out that you didn't really want to go out with, but you panicked a little bit and you said yes, look back and go, I wish I would have responded with a little more prudence and discretion. 
a little more wisdom and tact. Amy, if you say something, I'm going to lose it. (laughs) How many of you in your job look back and say, I wish I would have responded with a little more prudence and discretion, a little more wisdom and tact? How many of you in interactions with family members? How many of you did not respond with wisdom and tact, prudence and discretion, and put yourself in a very dangerous situation like I did. I'll, I've been on skates twice in my life. I'll jump in full goaltender gear and allow this guy to fire pucks at me. That sounds like a great idea. Right? That's one of Kaya's latest, uh, latest little mantras around the house. Is she'll go, hey, Daddy, here's a safe idea. Categorically, it's not a safe idea. Every single time she says that, it's not a safe idea. Like, here's a safe idea. Let him fire some pucks at me for a little while, even though I can't skate. Bad idea. And we do this all the time. We respond in a reactionary way and put ourselves in very difficult and dangerous positions, and especially when the stakes are high. And in this case for Daniel, the stakes are very, very, very high. His very life is at stake, and the life of his friends and colleagues are or is at stake. Here's, here's, here's what we need to know is that panic never makes good choices. Panic never makes good choices. Mm. But Daniel does not panic. He responds with prudence and discretion, wisdom and tact. What does that look like? When Daniel's faced with the prospect of dying because somebody else can't tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream... Look at three things he does that demonstrates his prudence and discretion. Watch this. First, he went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions. First thing he does is he seeks support. Do you see it? He goes to his brothers. He goes to his buddies. He goes to other God followers in his life, and he says, hey, I want to inform you of this. 98% of the time when you've made a choice out of panic that was a bad choice, if you look back and you would have shared that choice with some friends or brothers and sisters in Christ in advance and said, hey, what do you think? They could have bailed you out. They could have told you that was not a good idea, but you didn't bring it to them. Daniel, you know, he comes to them, he's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining this, right? It's hypothetical now. I'm gonna, should, we, could, should we run away? Should we organize a coup? You know, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are like, let's take a step back and just relax for a minute. He seeks support. Love that. Second thing he does, right? He tells them, seek the mercy of God of heaven concerning this mystery. He pursues prayer. Do you see it? He pursues prayer. He goes before the God of heaven. He says, oh, God, we're in a pickle, and this is not a good thing. And so, God, what would you have us do? Oh, God, rescue us. Oh, God, come to our aid. So he seeks support. He pursues prayer and watches the third thing he does. Look, he says, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So now he knows Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. See, he responds with praise. That's what a heart of prudence and discretion Wisdom intact does. The heart seeks support, pursues prayer, and responds with praise. Now, here's, there's the fruit, right? That's what Daniel did. Prudence and discretion, wisdom intact, evidenced by seeking support, going to God in prayer, and praising God when God answered the question. That's the fruit. But remember, what are we looking for here? 
We're looking for the roots, right? Because Daniel's a book about God. Daniel's a book about God. So what is it that God wants us to know about himself in Daniel chapter 2? Because if we know this character trait of God as revealed in Daniel chapter 2, and not just know it in our head, but know it in our heart and live life from this space, I'm telling you, there is an incredible amount of poise and patience, extraordinary and supernatural kind of being solid and not being blown and tossed like a wave of the sea. If we know this truth about God, and this truth about God, the roots here, the character of God is what we're looking for. It's revealed in Daniel's prayer. Daniel says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. <laughs> Keep going. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel is a book about God. Daniel is not a book about Daniel. Daniel is not a book about visions. When people get all, get all hyped up and TV preachers, especially on the visions of Daniel, Daniel is a book about visions. It's like saying Forrest Gump is a movie about jogging. Like a little more to it than that, right? Like Daniel's not a book about visions. What is it that God wants us to know about himself? What is that rooted place that we can live out of that causes to be people of prudence and discretion, wisdom and tact, even in the face of the most dire circumstances? Three truths that Daniel just told us. God knows everything, God is in control, and God is on my side. The, the, the biblical word for this, uh, or the, the $2 theological term, is omniscience. That God knows everything. Everything that's ever happened, everything that will happen. He knows about your job loss, past, present, and future. He knows about your marriage that fell apart or didn't fall apart, or the one that will fall apart. He knows your sin. He knows your shame. He knows everything. He knows those worries and insecurities. He knows about your mental health struggles. He knows. He knows every little thing. Daniel just told us that God knows what's hidden in the dark. There is nothing hid from him. He knows your deepest longings, even the longings that you can't even name and put a finger on. He knows them. He knows everything. Number two, Daniel just told us that God sets up kings and deposes them. Even the highest echelon of human authority, God is in total control. He's in total control. Uh, two sparrows were sold for a penny 2,000 years ago. Jesus says this, two sparrows were sold for a penny. You can't even get one sparrow for a penny. You'd have to have a half a penny. That doesn't make any sense. You get two sparrows, and not one of those cheap little birds falls to the ground outside of your father's control. There are these theological concepts out there that would say that, you know, that God has just kind of set the world to spin in and let it go. That is absolutely not the biblical picture of God. 
He is always sovereign. He is always in control. He always either allows or he always ordains things. He always either causes or allows things. Nothing on the planet, not coronavirus, not U.S. attacking Afghanistan last night, not nothing. Nothing is outside of his control. There is no point where God goes, oh my, oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming. Or I wish I could do something, but my hands are kind of tied. Number three, God is on my side. And, and, and I don't mean that God is on your side like, you know, and I've joked about this before, like I won a 1968 Camaro Supersport. Um, my birthday's in March. And, um, and so because God is on my side, he is going to buy me one. Like that's not what I mean. What I mean is God wants what's best for you. I'm hoping that a 1968 Camaro Supersport is what's best for me. My guess is it's not. He wants total human flourishing for you. He has a design for you. I mean, that's what we talk about here is that we want everyone everywhere to experience God's love and his created purpose through Jesus. He has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. He created you just like he wanted you. He wants what's best for you. He's not trying to withhold things from you. He's not trying to take things from you. He is on your side. He is in control and he knows everything. And so when we don't walk after Daniel's example and we run after those things in our life and try to grab control back from God, we end up breaking them, don't we? I watched Kaya yesterday. She has this... Um, this little fan, this little uh, uh, Asian fan that a, a, a friend of hers in her kindergarten class gave. This little girl, she's so sweet. Um, she's from Thailand, and it was a gift that, sh that she gave to Kaya, and Kaya really loves this fan. Like, she cherishes it. It's not a toy for Kaya. Like, it's a treasure, right? Loves this fan. And yesterday, Amy had it, and she was fanning Canaan because apparently... That's what 18-month-olds like is, you know, we fan you and we feed you grapes, you know. So like, a, like an ancient king. Uh, so she's fanning, she's fanning Canaan, and Kyle's watching the show, and she realizes that Amy has got this fan. And she jumps up and runs over out of anger and panic and thoughtlessness and grabs the fan and rips it. And you could just see her little heartbreak. And the great news is, you know, I was grateful. Amy fixed it, right? Amy fixed it. Not just the fan, but the panic that ensued, you know. Kaya was like, I'm sorry, mama. You know, and she starts screaming this little girl's name from her class who's not even in the room, right? I'm sorry, you know, and puts her name in there. And Amy just wraps her up and says, look, babe, like, like mom's in control. And mom knows better than you, and mom's on your side. You see it? Like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to withhold things from you. I'm not here to take things from you. I'm not going to take your treasure and make you feel dumb and shameful or whatever. And even when you try to take control of the things in your life and they kind of come apart a little bit, I'm still here with you to take those back, put them back together, and redeem them for my purposes. The point of Daniel chapter 2 is not for us to look at Daniel and go, I should be more prudent, I should be more wise. The point of Daniel chapter 2 is that we would know that God is the keeper of all wisdom and that he's always in control and that he's on our side and that we can trust him. 
place our faith in him, walk with him, and it gives us, as believers, followers of God, it gives us an incredible amount of poise to know that God is in control and he's on our side. One last thing, and I think it's uh, important for you to get this this morning, but you know, a lot of times we talk about wisdom and biblical wisdom, and we look at like the book of Proverbs, like, oh, there's all this wisdom in the book of Proverbs. But in fact, the kind of the swing, the hinge in the book of Proverbs is this situation where wisdom is personified as a female who is calling gentlemen suitors to come and like, let me make you a meal and those types of things. And so even the book of Proverbs that gives us all this wisdom uh, reveals that wisdom is, at its very base, it's the foundation of wisdom is relationship. The foundation of wisdom is a relationship with the giver of wisdom. So wisdom, biblically speaking, is not about what you know, it's about who you know. <laughs> you can never know all things. You could never pull up your bootstraps and act with poise and prudence and discretion and tact. Those are not things we naturally do, but when we know the God of the universe who knows all things and is in control and is on our side, even when the stakes are high, we can be calm and trust him and allow him to guide and lead. It's not about what we know, it's about who we know. This is why James says to us, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should do what? Ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Let's do that. Would you pray with me? I don't know what it is you may be facing in your life uh, right now. I don't want to just go through a bunch of hypothetical circumstances and situations, but you may feel like something in your life is beyond your control. You may feel like you've hit a wall a little bit spiritually. You may feel like the stakes are just too high and now it's time for you to take control back. And you really lack wisdom. There's a temptation not to be prudent, show discretion. You just take that to Jesus now. Leave it at the foot of the cross. My encouragement today, men and women of God, is that <clears throat> he's been faithful in the past and whatever you've brought to him today, this morning, call on him for wisdom. He'll be faithful again in the future. That's really what this song's about. This next one we're going to sing. God, we continue our worship as we give, as we pray, as we sing. Continue to draw us near and continue to root us deeply in your character and your grace, that you are in control, that you know all things, and that you're on our side. May we live out of that place rather than a place of panic. In Jesus' name.